Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. Today, we are here to talk about how Zero Trust helps combat some of the most common and prevalent cyber threats out there today. And in order for me to tackle this conversation, I am joined by Chris Shields, who is the Vice President of Product Marketing at AppGate. He's been aligning people, process, and technology to help drive companies forward for more than 20 plus years with experience in operations, sales, telecom, and business development. Um, his current focus is includes, includes evangelizing and marketing AppGate Zero Trust platform, AppGate SDP. We are going to be talking about AppGate, AppGate SDP specifically as well, just to kind of give a little bit of frame of reference and some context for how this particular Zero Trust access solution helps uh, prevent these threats. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and say hi to the audience and make sure that we all know you're here and human. Hello, audience, and hello, George, and I am human. Awesome. All right, and joined with Chris today is Mr. Greg Shields. Greg is a director of product management at AppGate. Uh, he's been in the networking and security space for more than 20 years, also with experience in sales, sales engineering, product management, um, including a 14-year stint at CenturyLink, which is now Lumen. Um, he joined AppGate last uh, September to work specifically on the AppGate SDP solution. Mr. Greg Shields, would you also please let the audience know that you are here and human? Greetings, George. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, welcome both of you. Before we actually even get into the meat of this topic, we like to play a little game at the beginning called What's Bugging You? It's a bit of fun that we have, kind of a little, of a, little bit of an icebreaker. So, Chris, um, I'm going to refrain from saying last names because I feel like if I'm going to say Shields and Shields, it's going to sound the same. So it's Chris and Greg today. So, Chris, what's bugging you? Gosh, um, if you'd asked me last week, I would have certainly said the NFL overtime rules, being a Bills fan. Um, no but kidding. yeah, hopefully they'll get that changed, you know, but when, you know, I guess more seriously, when it comes to cybersecurity, you know, we, we're still, we've been talking about this, uh, practitioner shortage or expertise shortage in cybersecurity for so many years. And it seems like nobody's really figured out how to create and build a, a talent pool, the talent pool we need. That's definitely a big problem. We actually just finished up having a recording session talking about the generational differences and, and cyber, a cyber skill shortage came up as, as part of an issue there as well. And some of it's not even just, you know, throwing more people at the problem, right? It's, it's making it easier for people in the roles to solve the problems in front of them and, and focus on more kind of needle moving um, activities. How about you, Greg? What's, what's bugging you? Well, it's funny. Uh, Jumping right on Chris's bandwagon with NFL-related things, being a lifelong Washington sports fan team, um, I am uh, sitting on pins and needles waiting to find out what the Washington football team's new name is going to be, which is supposed to be announced on Wednesday. And already having lived through the Washington Bullets become the Wizards, uh, which is arguably one of the worst names in professional sports, <laughs> I'm a little bit gun-shy when it comes to, to new names. But... Um, again, to, to, to what's really con concerning me is um, the massive increase that's been reported in cyber attacks since the pandemic has started and since people have started working remotely. I, I, I saw an article about a month ago that they threw a number out that attacks against corporate private networks have increased 1,500 oh, wow. percent um, since the pandemic started, which, which is not surprising, but it's incredibly worrisome. And you know, I 
I think there's certainly a, an argument to be made that a lot of the way that folks work now with um, working from anywhere, working remotely is, is really kind of the new norm. Um, sure, organizations, companies, um, agencies are going to be moving people back to the office at some point once we get this pandemic in the rearview mirror. But I think uh, a lot of companies are going to at least give their employees the opportunities to be opportunity to be remote a couple days a week, if not permanently. And I know organizations have hired folks in geographic places that they wouldn't normally have hired folks because there's no office. So, so with this being the new norm and um, the fact that we are going to be working remotely, this drastic increase in uh, attacks against organizations' networks is, is worrisome. And it, 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 it could potentially, you know, make this new norm uh, a challenge for organizations. And it's interesting to see how, how we're going to react to that. So that's what's kind of been on my mind lately, George. No, that's great. And I think it's a perfect segue into the topic for today, um, both with, you know, Chris's what's, uh, what's bugging you answer with skill shortage. And then Greg, with you, you know, an increase in cyber threats um, and cyber attacks. So, you know, what we're setting out to do here today is, is help the audience understand how the core tenants of a zero trust architecture, specifically talking about zero trust access. And like I mentioned, you know, we are going to be referencing AppGate SDP as a particular solution to this because we know it inside and out and we know how it can help there. Um, and that, that's the goal. But before we do that, you know, we do kind of want to just, you know, I think Greg, you did a little bit of it there and, and we could go a little bit deeper, but let's really understand kind of what this new digital battlefield actually looks like. And so I'm going to just ask a very basic question and we'll let the conversation take us there. Um, and maybe Chris, you could help uh, tee this up. You know, in your mind, could you help paint a picture of what the threat, the threat landscape looks today and, and what are some of the biggest threats facing organizations in your mind? Wow, George, that is a loaded question it and is. could take an hour in and of itself, right? You have three seconds. <laughs> three seconds. Um <laughs> You know, I would say that the sprawling attack surface is, you know, when you were reading that question and framing it up, I just kept thinking, you know, we've got this massive sprawling attack surface that just continues to grow and move around, you know, especially, you know, with the adoption of the cloud and cloud native resources, they spin up, they spin down, they move around so fast. You know, I, you know, thankful that I am no longer a practicing security professional, um, having to deal with that. And so I think, you know, when your stuff is all over the place, that the whole, you know, I, I hate to say the perimeter is dead because it's not dead. It's there. It's just, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with how we used to define the perimeter just even, you know, five or 10, 15 years ago where my resources are everywhere and my perimeter is everywhere. And I, you know, it's like, if I need to spin up some new resources in a new region in, you know, some infrastructure as a service company, in maybe say on the West Coast, because I've got some new developers out on the West Coast, I can't, you know, it'll take me a long time to, to lay a bunch of brick and mortar to build that castle uh, around that new perimeter. And then I have no, no, um, I have no confidence that that thing won't move uh, just as soon as I get the castle wall built. So a way to, you know, dynamically protect resources wherever they spin up or spin down or move to, I think is key. And part of the problem why this, uh, you know, the attack surface, it, is so big. Greg, what about you? Yeah. Oh, George, I think, you know, when you're having this discussion, I think a little compare and contrast is important. And, and like you mentioned, 
when we got this started. I've been doing this for about 20 years. And for the longest time, discussions about networks sounded like this. Well, I've got a headquarters and I've got three or four branch offices and, and, and I've got a data center and I have to connect them. They were always geographic descriptors when you when you talked about those networks and and chris touched on on how that's changed is that now no longer should we really be thinking about networks as connecting place a to place b with some railroad tracks what we have now is we're connecting applications and and users of those applications whether those users happen to be guys like us that are sitting with a laptop trying to do our jobs or are they an iot device or are they um <clears throat> something else and 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 those applications now are ephemeral or those locations are now ephemeral like chris pointed to we've got people moving applications to the cloud you can take a, a great example of something that's we've always kind of considered a a, a location based or, or physical based application moving to cloud is sap sap has given the mandate to their users and their customers that there will no longer be any premise-based SAP deployments. Everything will have to be deployed in the cloud and premise-based deployments today have to be moved to the cloud. So this, this digital transformation of moving applications from physical locations to the cloud was happening anyway. And this global pandemic and the workforces becoming remote did nothing but accelerate that. So now we have to really start thinking about application endpoints instead of being physical locations as being users and being applications or resources and how do we protect those things specifically as opposed to as chris indicated just building a moat or a wall around everything and, and so that's that's what's changed is it's no longer railroad tracks connecting stations it's now almost like drones, if you will, buzzing all over the place to different points and everything can be an endpoint that a user needs to connect to. And that's what's made the playing field so much more complicated. So I yeah. hope that kind of helps frame it a little bit with some contrast. It, it certainly does. Um, and, and and there's both some internal and external forces at play, right? So like those internal forces are those digital transformation efforts, the adoption of cloud, the breaking of the perimeter. But then there's also some external forces in my mind that come to, you know, uh, to the top of my mind. It's just that it's become a lucrative business, right? Like you think about these cyber criminal gangs, they are professional organizations where they have their own systems, they have their own processes. It's not this old visualization, you know, I'm actually currently watching Mr. Robot, right? Where you've got a bunch of hackers and some old, you know, uh, carnival storage facility that are hacking away at the network it's like these are professional organizations and they are making good money um another external factor to your point greg is is the pandemic these are things that you cannot control as as an organized as, as a as an organization trying to protect yourself but also as you talk about transformation you talk about people pushing out to the edge not being in in businesses but there's complexity there and i think I'd love to maybe touch a little bit on, you know, even outside of just the technology forces, um, you know, there's a study out there that says 84% of serious incidents are caused by employees' mistakes. Well, why is that? Is it because things are so hard now, both from a practitioner standpoint, but also an end user point of view? I don't know, Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, complexity is the enemy of the security practitioner and the friend of, of the attacker, right? <clears throat> and 
as you have so many different tools um, that you have to orchestrate and coordinate across to secure these resources and trying to keep up with the speed at which the business demands that that they need to move in order to stay competitive and compete in the market space. That's a huge burden um, on people. And, you know, we all know, you know, humans are uh, fallible and to err as humans. So, you know, you can only do so much training and you have to start to automate things and, and do things dynamically and try to take as much of the human element out of it and maybe just, in, you know, shifting into some kind of oversight mode and really simplify your controls, you know, try to get, you know, some sort of, you know, unified policy framework, uh, break down the silos between all these disparate security tools and platforms to really start to reduce that complexity. No, Greg, what do you think? Well, yeah, it's funny. Uh, having been in the network business as long as I have, I'm certain most of our guests are going to be familiar with the seven-layer OSI model, and we always used to refer to the fact that there's actually eight, and that's the people, and they're the problem. And 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 Chris, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is you've got to make it simple for people to be secure. Um, for those users, we we all will be in the middle of trying to do something and you know, a fire truck will drive by or a kid will yell or a dog will bark and a coworker will say something and instant message will pop up and we all get distracted. And, and when you're not focusing on the thing you're doing, that's when people can fall prey to a, a phishing email because they're not really paying attention to it. Um, and, and we see those all the time. So it's, I, I think when, when you look at securing an enterprise, you've got to take that human element into account. And you have to understand that there's no way you are going to 100% perfectly secure everything as long as that there are people that are still involved. So what do we do to understand that vulnerability that we all are to our organizations? And how do we put systems and processes and tools in place to uh, simplify users using those tools to be secure? And then when they don't and when they screw up and when they fail, when us humans fail to do the things we need to do to be secure, how do we limit that threat surface and the resulting uh, problems that come from somebody not paying attention to what they should be when they're, when they're following security um, procedures? So I'm obviously going to lead the witness here um, a little bit. Greg, let's keep this with you for just a second. And before we kind of go into how Zero Trust helps prevent ransomware, insider threat, um, third-party supply chain, uh, those kinds of things. What's wrong with the security tooling sets that we have today that is mandating a new way of thinking um, about this? You know, VPNs, firewalls, NACs, like, could, could you summarize that for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the one that will probably, out of all three of those, George, the one that will speak to most of us um, because we've used them is VPNs. And, you know, VPN was a, a brilliant idea when it was created 20 years ago. It was something necessary. And, and I can remember describing it to a, a, a prospect that I was sales engineer supporting a, a sales rep on. And I said, it's great. It's like a gigantic Ethernet cord. Imagine that you're in your cube at your office, but you're, but you're not. You're at home and you've got this 10-mile-long Ethernet cord that allows you to be on that network just like you are at work. Um, 
And, and the problem with VPNs is just that, is that once you're connected to it, um, you've now kind of got free run of the environment. You can move laterally throughout it. And, and when those of us in the zero trust practice are, are, are talking about zero trust, you, you often go back and kind of tell the history, tell the story. You tell about the Forrester Report where the term was first coined. And, and I often then immediately move right to the, the, the great target hack that was sort of the, the validation of why, um, why zero trust needed to happen. And for those of you that aren't familiar with it, to kind of sum it up briefly, Target hired an, uh, an a energy management company to come in and manage their resources, and they gave this company a, a VPN connection into their environment. The company set up sensors on the HVAC systems, the cool boxes, um, to monitor temperatures, try to manage the energy better, and some other third party hacked into the management company and then used their tunnel into Target, started moving laterally inside Target. They got a hold of a bunch of Target's proprietary customer information. Giant mess. COO lost his job, or the CFO lost his job um, over it. The billions of dollars in damage to the Target brand is well documented. You can go search for it. But we, we tell those stories. But, but that really fundamentally shows the problem with that, as Chris mentioned earlier, that perimeter security model, where once you're inside the perimeter, you can move anywhere that you wish. And, and that's what VPNs really allow. So, and again, when you start thinking of networks, as I mentioned earlier, as physical locations, VPNs fit that narrative. I'm connecting to the data center. I'm connecting to corporate, right? So I can move anywhere throughout there what I want. But if we started thinking about end users and applications, if you go back to that target example, the worst thing the bad guys could have done is maybe thawed out some chicken breasts or heated up a room instead of getting access to private customer information. So that really is, is where VPNs kind of fall down, is that they allow that unfettered access to everything inside of an environment. And if you go back to real users, right? If I'm in the office, I've got a badge that ostensibly gets me in the front door. The security guard recognizes me. My coworkers know I'm supposed to be there. But with a VPN, if someone steals my credentials, no one knows who that is that's actually connecting. So so that's why they just don't fit anymore, George. And, and gosh, even without this rise in remote work and even without this digital transformation that's taking place, they still don't really have any place inside modern enterprises anymore. And that's what we see now. I mean, we see the federal government leading the charge on it. We've gotten executive orders from the White House that say that all federal agencies need to be moving towards a zero trust model. And it's really fascinating seeing the federal government take the lead on a, a technology innovation. Um, and we're watching now private enterprises starting to recognize this necessity as well. And, and we really see people moving to this zero trust model to mitigate those um, by nature vulnerabilities that just are part of tr trusting a traditional VPN for remote access. I hope that answered that question, George. It does. No, that, that, that was great. Um, and I think one thing that I, I held on to there is uh, the target attack could have just been <clears throat> uh, reduced to throwing out some chicken breasts, which I would argue could actually have also spread uh, salmonella, which <laughs> could have also been a very bad output for, right. for targeting. Maybe not as bad as what it was, though. Uh, there's another fun one that sticks out to me. I think there was a casino that was hacked through their fish tank because it was connected to the corporate network. And so, this, you know, it just goes to show you back to um, the what's bugging you question around the, the, the increase of attack surfaces as we start connecting all of these things. So let's talk about how we solve these problems, right? Enough doom and gloom. Let's talk about zero trust. Uh, before we get into some specific threat type examples and how the principles of zero trust can be applied, 
let's level set on what those principles are. So Chris, do you want to kind of paint this picture here for us in terms of, you know, what some of these core components of zero trust look like so we can apply them forward? Yeah, sure, George. <clears throat> you know, and it's there. I think the good news is they're starting to get some consistency around defining zero trust and, and some of the core principles there. Slightly different, you know, from different sources. You know, one, one that I like is uh, is wrapped around three core principles. You got to ensure all resources or are accessed securely, regardless of their location. Uh, very short and sweet, but a lot of things packed packed in there in terms of all resources accessed securely, regardless of location. <clears throat> Adopt a least privilege strategy uh, and strictly enforce access control. That that's a big thing. Is you know, starting from a default deny. Uh, posture uh, rather than a default allow posture, and then only allowing very specific things through based on context and risk. And then to, you know, inspect and log all traffic. Um, those are kind of three, the general three core principles. I, I strongly feel that there absolutely is a fourth core principle, and that's that it's got to be continuous. <clears throat> um, and, you know, a lot of the secondary principles go into that continuous and, and dynamic portion. But, you know, it can't just be about a point in time because, you know, even if I'm logging into my laptop at 930 in the morning to do work, I'm that might be me and that might be me trying to do legitimate things. And then five minutes later, like Greg said, I get distracted. I click on a phishing link or, you know, I go to some drive by malware site and get a dropper. And now, you know, five minutes after my initial connection, I'm now my device is compromised. I may be going to grab a cup of coffee, but that threat actor is actually now trying to move laterally inside the organization. So I think that continuous has is, is got to be a huge part of it. Greg, do you have any follow-on thoughts to that? No, I mean, Chris did hit the nail on the head with that continuous bit, and he yeah. laid out the reasons why perfectly. But but the other one is that, that least privilege access. I, I just want to dig into that a little bit more, George, because a lot of people don't really... Um, understand what that fully means and 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 then sometimes can be a little bit intimidated by the thought of it right so when we say least privilege access i love using a metaphor we talk about the the zero trust hotel you guys may have heard that before and few of us have started traveling in for work and if you think about a traditional hotel you take the elevator up to the third floor you've got your room key the door opens and there's all these doors now you're only supposed to get into one of those but you can see all of those doors up and down that hallway in a least privilege access or zero trust hotel, when you take that elevator up and that door opens, your room key opens one door and the only thing you can see is that door. When you can see all the doors, a door might not be closed all the way. There's maybe a housekeeper who found out their car has a car problem and they don't have the money to fix it. And they might take 200 bucks to let you into a room you're not supposed to get into. You might have found a key in the hotel bar that's still in the paper envelope with the room number in it. So if you can find a door, you can get to a door. Oh, and with zero work. trust, yeah, with zero trust, we make those doors invisible. Um, and that's the idea behind least privilege access. If someone shouldn't have access to something, they shouldn't even be able to see it, find it, even know that it exists. Yeah. And I think another one, uh, not to add to it, but, um, you know, securely regardless of location, I think this goes back into Greg, what you were talking about and the fact that, you know, everything has, has, has kind of moved path as I bear being geography based or IP based identity, right? And, and the utilization of identity beyond just username, password, and do I know this computer? Do I trust this computer? Is there 
and I think that's common across any of the analyst firms as well. I mean, that that's one consistent component I always see is that you put identity at the heart of everything you do related to access, privileges, authentication, authorization, all of it. Any thoughts? Well, that sounds great. No, that, that really is true. You know, when I think, gosh, I was just pondering the word identity. And to me, it's, you know, a lot of times it's just often confused with a person or a user sure. or their account in AD or the roles that they're assigned. But really, you know, we need to take a much broader view of identity in terms of, you know, that that identity is that person plus their device, plus their account, plus their context, that kind of 360 degree multi-dimensional identity profile but then also not just users like systems have to have their own identity in a zero trust uh, framework as well and be treated as a user if they're accessing other services because um, you can't just you know lock down just the user access but you know if it's it's ironic you know I we were talking earlier about people and you know the fact that we make mistakes right it's just ironic that our greatest asset in the enterprise, is our people and mm -hmm. it's also our greatest risk. Um, but, you know, if I, if I take it back to kind of when I think about ransomware and, you know, applying the principles of zero trust, right? Well, it's difficult to stop maybe that initial attack vector. Um, you know, you talked about these ransomware gangs and ransomware literally as a service where I could go if I was a bad person, which I'm not most of the time I could go, you know, rent, uh, you know, go pay these ransomware as a service companies out there to go do these bad things for me. Uh, like you said, it is very lucrative and because it's very lucrative, they're well-funded, you know, professional criminal organizations. Um, and, but, you know, the, the ransomware in and of itself has become much more sophisticated and now especially network aware where maybe, you know, back in the early days of ransomware, I, I attack your machine, I encrypt the Excel spreadsheets on your machine, right? It's not that big a deal. Um, but if I'm able to move inside the organization laterally and pivot, you know, to different endpoints and encrypt deeper into the network, that is a big problem. And so when you apply that principle that Greg touched on, that least privileged access, you can really very quickly, um, just with that set of least privileged entitlements, lock down how and what that malware, or excuse me, that ransomware can actually go see and, and encrypt. Um, but then if you take in a context into play, you know, is there, is there, is the organization under attack? You know, is this coming in at the right time of day? Those things, you can even, you know, dynamically start to um, change those privileges to even further restrict that ransomware's ability to move inside the network. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, right, that there is no silver bullets to solving any of these problems. And so there's specific instances in the kill chain where zero trust um, is, is applicable. Greg, do you have any additional thoughts on ransomware prevention and, and, and zero trust that Chris touched on? Well, yeah, um, it, 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 it again, the reason that zero trust can be such a powerful tool in a, in a, in a fight against ransomware, it comes back to what Chris was talking about earlier when he was giving his example of I log on at nine and why why continuous inspection is so important. I log on at nine thirty in the morning, I go get a cup of coffee, I get distracted, I click on an email I shouldn't have. Now we have a bad actor in the system. If Chris's access is limited to only the application that Chris needs to do his job and nothing else inside the the corporate environment, then that bad attacker only can 
cause problems on that one application that Chris can get to. And maybe not even any problems at all because Chris's access limited down by port and protocol level may be in such a thing that he can't even do anything other than have read access into what that application is. Again, you go back to traditional VPN. Once you're in, you're in. You can move anywhere. So so that zero trust model of least privilege access, even without the continuous inspection, which which is critical, as Chris mentioned, but you can drastically reduce that threat surface that a bad actor can work on when getting at control of, of an asset, like Chris mentioned. And that's vital in the, in the, the threat against ransomware, just critical. And, and, and another point, <clears throat> I think, Chris, you mentioned um, inspecting and log all traffic, right, which at face value does not come across as the most mind-blowing, sexiest thing in the world. But it all comes down to the fact that if, if that, that phishing email does get clicked, that device does get compromised, once a zero trust architecture identifies that, given continuous uh, ongoing monitoring, that same information could also then get passed back to the security team in order for them to take the right response and mitigation methods that might fall outside of you know your general tooling and is now more of a people problem. So access gets limited, security team gets prompted because of the fact that these systems are now talking to each other. And I think that's just another instance where the logging and, and the ongoing inspection of those, um, it was more so the, the logging is, is just as imperative as the ability to lock down access. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say 100%. Uh, you know, you've got to, whether it's some kind of, you know, enterprise SIM, you, you've got to get all these all of the logs from these security tools into a system where you can look at them across, you know, holistically. It's the whole, you know, getting back to breaking down the the silos and the barriers between some of these security groups and security teams and the network teams and the IT infrastructure teams um, and starting to get that holistic visibility and then being able to take action. You know, maybe you're kicking off incident response based on, you know, this incident because I went to have a cup of coffee and clicked on a drive-by and now I'm you know, put the organization in a bad situation, which I hope I never do. But, uh, you know, so while that incident response investigation is underway, you know, being able to look and see from maybe, you know, you can do things rather than, you know, using a hammer, so to speak, right? You can, you know, surgically maybe craft some access for that user to non-critical resources so that, you know, in terms of, maybe the whole organization, you wouldn't just want to shut everybody out and shut everybody down. That would cost millions of dollars in business and lost productivity. But, you know, the ability to maybe remove the critical infrastructure from the network very quickly in terms of a response so that people could do some other more menial things that to, you know, continue to do work uh, while you're doing the investigation. I don't know. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about third-party risk? I think, Greg, this, this naturally comes back to you talking about Target and the HVAC systems. Could you help illuminate how, in, you know, an instance of... And I, maybe let's first, let's define what we mean by third-party. Because when I think about third-party, I think about it in two veins. There's third-party uh, services, right, or service providers, people who are, are physically getting access into systems. But then there's also the third-party that's related to... Uh, you know, software supply chain and technologies that you are potentially bringing into your ecosystem. So do you, you want to take this one for us and talk third party? Yeah, absolutely. George, delighted to. So, so when we talk about third party, what we're talking about is we're talking about 
allowing access to stuff within our enterprise, um, typically via network connection, um, to individuals or organizations who don't directly work for us. And, and this could be anybody. Um, this could be our company is looking at acquiring another company and we're giving the accountants from the other company access to stuff within our environment. Um, we've hired some developers that are going to build a new application for us. We need to give them access to some of our stuff. Um, one of the, the big third-party environments a lot of people don't ever think about is in manufacturing. If you look at a mo uh, modern assembly line today, anywhere between 30 to 60 different devices will be part of that assembly line that, that are managed and owned and operated by third parties. It's an, an assembly line is a gigantic extranet. Um, and, and each one of these devices perform individual different jobs, and they all have to be supported and managed outside of that by third parties that are accessing a network. Um, so third-party risk is something that has grown as we've looked to look for people to develop applications for us, look to automate tasks that were formerly done by individuals as mergers and acquisitions have increased. And what's happening at the same time as these third-party connections are growing is um, more and more states have started um, looking at legislation to ensure that when a third-party risk incident takes place, that the company that really had the problem in our earlier story, Target, can't try to um, transfer the responsibility to the original third party. So companies really need to be looking at how they're opening up their networks and, and what can they do to secure that to prevent liability down the road. And again, this is where zero trust becomes a critical tool in that effort. So <clears throat> let's go back to we've hired third-party developers that are building an application for our company. Um, these third-party developers, they don't, they don't work for us. We don't control. I mean, they, they're, they're our customer, um, but, but they don't, we, we're not in charge of the assets that they use to connect to our networks. We can't control those. Um, we probably have to give them access to the data that they're using to build out this application. We probably have to give them access to lab resources. And that's great that we can do all that and outsource that to, to hire that expertise as we need to build that application. But do we want those third parties having access to our HR records? Do we want those third parties having access to other proprietary um, information and, and uh, um, intellectual property that we have that we've used to develop other um, products and services that our, our company is dependent upon for revenue? So again, deciding what specific resources these third parties get access to and then being able to control that through a zero-trust deployment of, of a zero-trust network access model really protects all of those other resources, dollars, bits of information, um, proprietary uh, intellectual property from ever falling into the wrong hands. And not only is that critically important from a business operations perspective, but again, it's becoming more and more important from a liability perspective as legislation is changing on a state-by-state -state basis to make sure that that responsibility exists with the company that ultimately um, had the problem. So I hope that, that covers that for you, George. And I think, you know, when you think about third parties as well, I think a lot of those same principles just get implied to when we talk about inside of threats. So I don't think it's worth unpacking that. It's, it's very much a similar narrative um, and those core tenants get applied one that does stick out to me, though, that is different, um, DDoS. I don't know, Chris, if you've got you know a quick little DDoS segment here we could we could touch on, and then how zero trust can be applied to preventing those. 
Yeah, I mean, DDoS is <clears throat> is also uh, a growing problem, and lots of you know effort and resources are being put into you know more sophisticated, easier, cheaper, faster attacks, as well as you know companies trying to come out with services and ways to combat those attacks. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, a specific uh, technology that is single packet authorization is has been proven. Um, you know, both internally, we, you know, we've proven it to ourselves as well as, you know, the SDP Zero Trust uh, Working Group and the Cloud Security Alliance, you know, used to have hackathons back in the day where, you know, they would invite hackers to try to attack, uh, you know, a, a software-defined perimeter using single packet authorization um, with the free tickets to Black Hat. Um, you know, I think, you know, a technology, having a technology in your stack that has some sort of technology like single packet authorization that can uh, cloak that infrastructure, it also has the capability and added benefit of, you know, providing a significant amount of, of distributed um, denial of service where it can quickly drop packets and look for that single packet that is correct, uh, you know, to the tune of millions of packets per, uh, gosh, I don't want to get in trouble, just millions of packets per some very short time frame, uh, you know, anyway, I can't remember the specific... Uh, that's all right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's totally fine. Um, I think just to kind of put a bow on this, right? I mean, th th there's evidence out there and research that has been done that just proves when you implement a zero trust architecture, which is just not a single technology, right? Nor is it just technology minded. It's it, it's people. It's process. It's everything. Um, but IBM and Ponymon did a uh, a joint study, and what they found in 2021 is that the average cost of a breach was 35% lower for organizations in the mature stage of zero trust deployment uh, versus those without. And on average, this equated to about $1.76 million uh, per incident. I mean, that, that's that's huge savings, right? So it, it, is, it is being proven. The adoption of zero trust is absolutely top of mind for a lot of organizations. Uh, and I guess before we wrap up here today, like how, how what, what guidance would both of you give to a company who's starting to, to start out on the zero trust journey? I'll start, Greg. Uh, you know, I would, if I put my security practitioner and IT consultant hat back on from, you know, 15 years ago, I would take that report and go ask for $1.76 million in budget uh, to <laughs> get my zero trust initiative started. I, I think the beauty of it is that, you know, zero trust, you know, has been around for a long time, you know, 20 10, you know, the first Chewy Center's Kindervog paper with, at Forrester, even before that, you know, with the Jericho Forum. But, you know, we really reached this uh, early majority phase. And so there are companies, large enterprises that have gone far down this path that, as the IBM Ponymon report shows, are showing substantial security improvements in the terms of the cost of a breach being reduced by that huge amount. So that's kind of what I do. I try to use that to uh, to take to my uh, upline to try to get budget approvals to at least get my my journey kickstarted with that kind of third party proof. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I guess George, what I would suggest there is again one of the things that's always been interesting about being in the security business is um, it's a bit like selling flood insurance, right? I can look around my neighborhood and. I don't know that there's ever been a flood here where I live in North Carolina. And so if someone knocked on my door tomorrow and said, hey, I'd love to talk to you about flood insurance, it's going to be a difficult conversation. 
but but things have changed and and, and I think I shared with you one of those numbers that, that things have changed on the security front 1500% increase in attacks against corporate networks um your, your neighbor's houses are getting floods and even if you have not had a security incident yet I'm delighted to hear that Mr. customer that's great that that you have um got a users group who is clever and doesn't click on links they shouldn't click on um you've built out an infrastructure that's protected you but it's not so much a question of when you're going to have or, or if you're going to have security incident anymore. It's a question of when. So find that thing that's happening that can be your 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 touch point for beginning that zero trust network transformation. And you're going to hire some third party to work on an application for you. You're going to. Um, uh, move an application from on-prem to cloud. Let's say you're going through an SAP migration. We talked on that a little bit earlier about how SAP is moving that. You've got to migrate some application from on-prem to the cloud. Let's use that to put in place a new uh, infrastructure that's zero trust. You can use that to migrate that application from physical servers in your data center up to something cloud-based. You can have your um, network administrators and your database administrators access that application in both places using a zero trust framework. Use that as your kickstart. Start to get your hands around what it feels like to work with least privilege access. Start to get your arms around what it's like to do continuous monitoring of assets and resources and find out what their security postures are and get your feet wet. And once you start to get comfortable with it, it's time to move the rest of the organization to it. And like Chris said, here's your budget. Go get it and, and make it happen. That's really sage advice, and, and, and thank you both for um, sharing all of this insight today with, with both myself and the audience. Uh, before we wrap up, we do like to kind of end things on a bit of a, a fun note, and we play a rapid-fire question game. It has absolutely nothing to do with cybersecurity, cyber threats, or zero trust. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask three questions, um, and you can each answer as fast as you can. So, Greg, we'll start, to, we'll start with you. Uh, what is your most used emoji, assuming you use emojis? Well, I'll tell you, the past week, my most huge emoji has been uh, crossed fingers. I, I, this past week, I've, I've been coming down with COVID, um, and oh, I'm feeling better, thankfully, uh, but it was a rough week last week, and I got a lot of texts where people said, well, are you feeling better? Is it getting close to the end? And I sent a lot of uh, crossed fingers emojis. I've gotten a lot of use out of that one over the past week, George. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, our family just uh, has been past the COVID train as well, and I apologize for my barking dog. <laughs> Chris, how about you? What's your favorite? What's your most used emoji? Uh, if they're, I think they're ranked on my iPhone, and so it's it's the it's the winky face for sure, <laughs> closely followed by the strong arm, which my kids give me flack about. Says it's a cheesy emoji. I shouldn't use it. My teenagers. <laughs> well, that's when you have to keep using it. Oh that's yeah, your, Just that's your job, them. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So next question here. <clears throat> You can visit any fictional time or place. What would you pick? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge Mad Men fan. And I really think that it would be fun to go back and have really cool suits, snappy sunglasses, um, two martinis at lunch. Apparently <laughs> smoking and not wearing seatbelts wasn't bad for you back then. I'd, uh, I'd love to get back to the, the, the kind of early 60s. Yeah, and, and I would definitely have to have a really cool British sports car. There you go. Well, I guess if this is all fictional and make believe, right? The the smoking and, and and the constant drinking wouldn't be bad for you. No, you'd be perfectly fine. Right. <laughs> How about you? 
Ah, oh, fictional. Gosh, I'd probably want to go to the Shire before all the crap hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> just live in a little hobbit hole and, you know, just do some gardening, some farming, set off some fireworks. It looks pretty cathartic. I could see yeah. it being a nice place to hang out. <laughs> all right, last question. What song could you listen to repeatedly? Who's, who's going first on that oh, one? Oh, wow. You I don't can know. Go, Greg. Go, Greg. Okay. So uh, I also have kids, like Chris said, and, and um, they, they don't give me a hard time about emojis, but they will uh, always point out when I find some new song that I love and I get stuck on and I make them listen to it over and over and over and over and over again. And lately, for whatever reason, I've just been listening to uh, Blue Monday by New Order over and over and over and over again. And I love it. And it's a great song. There you go. <clears throat> um, gosh, probably Boston more than a feeling. I never get sick of that song. It's just right. so feel good, attached to some great memories from back in the day. Do you also they, annoy your kids by playing it over and over? Yeah, they tell me all my music is old. And, <laughs> and I then, say, well, that's where all the good the music is. And then you send them the strong arm emoji. And then I send them the strong arm emoji. That's right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Hey, guys, thank you so much again for, for joining us. And for the audience, uh, thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and may not represent the views of, the, of their organizations. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. And that's a wrap, guys. Sorry for the dog. Mm-hmm.